Welcome to the latest edition of Spotlight, a PEI media podcast that looks into the latest in private markets investing. I'm Adam Lay, news editor at PEI, and today we have another special episode looking at how the novel coronavirus crisis is affecting private markets. Joining me today are senior editors from our various titles covering private equity, buyouts, private debt, private real estate, infrastructure, and secondaries. And of course, we're coming to you from our living rooms, kitchens, and bedrooms around the world as the COVID-19 lockdown continues. Let's jump right in. Chris Wachowski from Buyouts, love to jump to you and, and hear about what you've been seeing and covering in the markets there. You're based in New York. What can you tell us about how the North American buyout market and private equity market has been faring over the last two weeks? I guess the big story right now for uh, North American private equity would be the idea that private equity equity-backed portfolio companies probably are not going to be able to access emergency government funds that are available to small businesses. The problem is that a small business backed by a private equity firm is going to be considered affiliated with all that private equity firm's other companies. So the individual business on its own may only have, say, 50 employees, But because it's considered affiliated with all the private equity firms, other companies, it's probably going to put it over this 500 employee threshold that is in place for a small business to qualify for emergency loans under this uh, stimulus program. The small business has to have fewer than 500 employees. And so it's not looking great for private equity being able to access this type of emergency stimulus. I'm I'm curious, Chris, in in any sort of conversations you've been having with GPs or even LPs, sort of what's the sentiment from them? What do they think, you know, the government should be doing in terms of the CARES Act? And I mean, I'm guessing they're going to say that they they think their portfolio companies should benefit from it. But curious to to hear what you've heard. What's funny is I was actually talking to a GP the other day who said that, even if they were able to, to get access to these funds, they probably wouldn't take it because the funds actually come with certain restrictions. For instance, in order to get these loans, which are considered forgivable, they're, they're very low interest rate and forgivable, they would have to abide by certain terms like holding on to employees f- over a certain period of time, not having layoffs over a certain period of time. And so this particular GP I was talking to was like, well, first of all, we feel that we don't need them. Okay, number one. And number two, even even if we did, I don't think that we would want to go in for these types of restrictions. We need to be able to have control of what we do with our companies during this period of time because we you know, basically we know what's best. We know how to get our companies through this. And so we don't need to abide by any sort of governmental rules restricting our ability to make decisions for our companies. So that, that, that was an interesting perspective. This, this GP wouldn't even want to take the funds. On the other hand, a lot of people... On the LP side, I've talked to believe that their GP should have access to these funds. They don't want to see mass layoffs across the the portfolio. And so any sort of help from the government or wherever it comes from, you know, they think that private equity should have access to. So I think a lot of it is up in the air right now until everything really gets finalized. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see. What happens? Toby Mitchell, senior editor at Private Equity International in London. I wanted to ask you about one of the biggest stories that your title had this week about LP defaults. Can you let us know sort of what we found there and um, and the key takeaways? Yeah, so we had a huge amount of interest this week in a story we put out about a lawyer who was happy to go on the record to say he'd seen a couple of LP defaults so far as part of this COVID-19 crisis. So 
This is when a limited partner can't honour the capital call that they've signed up to, or won't honour the capital call they've signed up to. Um, so the idea of LPs defaulting is a big deal, and it barely ever has happened historically in private equity, and there were very, very few examples even during the global financial crisis. Now, we don't know who those LPs were who reportedly defaulted, and our conversations with market sources more widely suggest that these were isolated incidences. And in fact, a lot of people read the story and immediately set about hitting the phones trying to find out who these LPs were, because obviously it's, it's, it's bad news for a GP to think that their LPs might not honour capital calls. It's also bad news for the banks and other types of lenders who lend against the limited partner subscription agreements. So if LPs start defaulting, then who's going to pay down that credit line? But yeah, these were, it would seem, isolated incidences, and there's no real expectation of large established LPs defaulting on commitments or kind of there's certainly no widespread LP defaulting going on at the moment. But that isn't to say that liquidity among institutional investors is not a worry at the moment. Um, certainly GPs are thinking about this and uh, we've heard some from numerous different sources actually. We've heard that some of them are just calling capital a little bit early, bringing forward capital calls that they were going to do this summer just so that they know that they've got the cash on hand. Because at the same time, institutions have seen distributions from their funds slow down just as capital calls have actually ticked up. If you look at the last four weeks compared to the same period last year, actually more capital is being drawn down partly because of the use of sublines. Some of the historic transactions are now landing on the LPs doorsteps. So are LPs defaulting? Not that we know of. Might they? We hope not. But you never know. Yes, uh, interesting on the LPs saying they're experiencing more capital calls. Um, very lastly, I, I know, Toby, you, you wrote an opinion piece today about LP defaults. Just wondering if you had any sort of interesting reaction or responses from, um, from the market yet. A little bit of reaction in terms of people saying, yes, we've also seen GPs who are preparing for this to be a problem. But again, no one coming out and saying this is already happening. I mean, fingers crossed we were kind of on the button with, with, with where we are with it. And also, fingers crossed that it's actually not a problem as we stand. Uh, Toby, in, in your letter I th today, I think you mentioned that LPs are also potentially or could be potentially pushing back on capital calls, asking their GPs to not call capital. I heard that same idea from a couple sources who said that they have heard that so-called like activist LPs are going to their GPs and asking them not to call capital, which is something that happened in the global financial crisis as well. Not that there was a lot of deal flow back then to even chase, but at that time, LPs seemed to go to their GPs and say, look, can you hold off on calling capital right now until we can sort of get out of this public market uh, decline? And so I've heard that same thing from a couple sources uh, actually this week. Yeah, that's interesting. That, that, that was, to my mind, very much a feature of the last crisis. But as you said, deal making dried up in a pretty substantial way. The expectation is that it probably won't dry up as much this time because this isn't a credit crisis and GPs are still a bit chastened by the fact that they didn't invest much during the last crisis and they may have missed out. Isabel Markham, jumping to you in New York, senior um, editor at Private Equity International. PEI conducted a survey of institutional investors over the past week and published the results today about LP sentiment in light of COVID-19. What can you tell us about the, the key takeaways from that? 
Yeah, so obviously a big question for the industry is how LPs are taking this and how it's going to be affecting their game plan going forward for 2020. And as you said, we surveyed 80 institutional investors with private equity allocations last week. Unsurprisingly, perhaps it is affecting their game plan for the year. Uh, more than half are either considering or planning to reduce the number of new fund commitments that they make this year, and 12% are going to reduce the planned average size of commitments. This is interesting. I mean, most sources that we've spoken to on the investment consultant side are advising their LPs, you know, not to do anything too sudden. You know, if you're considering investments at the moment, you've got quite far down the road. You know, if you can, you should go ahead and make those commitments because, you know, as Toby was explaining, the issue for LPs is really commitments they made a couple of years ago that are now calling down that capital. If you make an investment in a fund today, it's probably going to be the end of the year or 2021 before they actually start calling that capital. Although obviously that's quite a difficult balancing act for the LP that's feeling like they don't necessarily have the money in their pocket right now. Thinking about the denominator effect, I know we spoke about that last time, we surveyed LPs at the end of 2019 to see where they were at with their private equity commitments. 32% were under allocated at that time, 51% at target or over allocated. Obviously that's completely out of whack now, with one in five now planning or considering becoming more active sellers on the secondaries market. So we'll see what happens there. And one of the last questions that we asked investors at the end of the survey was about how much visibility they have into the impact of COVID-19 on their uh, private equity portfolio performance. Some slightly worrying uh, results there, Isabel. Yeah, so close to two thirds are saying they don't feel that they have good visibility on the impact COVID-19 is having on the portfolio companies. This is also, you know, to be expected. This is a situation that's changing every day. You know, if you're a GP who owns a restaurant, yes, you can call up your LPs and say, we're a restaurant chain, we've closed down immediately. But for a lot of portfolio companies, this is more of a slower burn. It's tough to figure out exactly where the company is and to change all of those projections that you've made for the year. Despite, as you said, um, a little bit of a worrying takeaway from our own survey, anecdotally, LPs are telling us that they're actually really happy with the GP communication that they've had so far, some even describing it as the best they've ever seen. So I think there's an understanding that the GPs are doing the best that they can right now. On the one hand, there's fighting fires within the portfolio and LPs want them to be focused on doing that. So they can't just be on the phone with their investors all the time but they are doing the best they can to update them in real time about what's going on in the portfolio and be available and open to answering any questions. So GPs are trying to, as far as your conversations have been going, being as, as open as they can with their with LPs and communicating as much as they can. You, you had an interesting Q&A with a veteran of private markets investing, uh, John Carlo Mark from Upwelling Capital, a veteran of CalPERS. You asked him sort of what LPs are expecting from their GPs right now. What, what was his response? So he told us that, you know, the LPs are expecting their GPs to be completely hands-on with their portfolio companies right now. I mean, we've been talking about hands-on value creation on the kind of upmarket side of things for years now. And well, here you go. Now's the time to prove it. GPs have got a lot of work to do right now. If it's a highly levered business as well, they need to think about if there's a way out for the equity. I mean, if this ends up going on for a long time, not every business is going to be able to be saved. So, you know, how are you triaging those situations when 
you know, certain GPs who are in specific sectors, it could be a huge proportion of their portfolio is on fire right now. So difficult decisions are going to have to be made. But interestingly, he said, you know, LPs are counting on their managers to do what they tell the LPs that they do really well, which is to be a financial expert and also to be an operational expert. So, you know, this is really going to sort out the best managers and see who can really walk the talk. So definitely uh, GP's time to shine. Moving to the world of private debt, Andy Thompson, senior editor at Private Debt Investor. What have been some of the most surprising or, or, or interesting things that you've seen and heard over the last two weeks? The first one would be some coverage we had yesterday of the CLO market, which was written by my colleague, John Bakey. This was interesting. I mean, CLOs are, I guess, a relatively small part of our market, but one that's grown enormously in popularity over the last few years. His coverage was of the European market, and it was essentially about the prospect of CLO funds breaching concentration limits, which is quite a niche development, admittedly, but it's it's quite interesting. Most CLO funds uh, have a limit of lower rated paper that they're allowed to invest in, and this is typically around about 7.5%. There's been absolutely no problem with that at all in recent times. Generally, they've kept their low rated paper, which is CCC rated paper or below, around about the 3% mark, so that's well below the 75 that they're allowed to have. The issue is that um, if you just go one rating level higher than that, up to B minus rated paper, about 20 or even 30% of portfolios are comprised of that paper. The issue now, of course, is in the environment we're in, a lot of that paper is expected to deteriorate and become triple C or lower. So the expectation is that concentration limits will be breached and you'll have what the industry describes as over collateralization. When that happens, then cash gets shunted away from the junior tranches to sort of prop up the senior tranche holders. So I think for anybody who's invested in those junior riskier parts of the CLO structures, current conditions are going to present them with with some difficulties they're going to lose a lot of value potentially they may lose everything is there any sense that this is kind of like a perfect storm situation and a lot of investors are going to suffer significantly or is it uh, more a sort of contained uh, issue to do with over collateralization yeah i think it's more contained in in europe actually a feeling is that you know some of the more sort of dramatic headlines are coming out of the us at the moment in relation to CEOs. But this was, it was for that reason, it was interesting to look at what's happening in Europe because there's been a lot of noise around the situation in the US and, you know, I haven't really seen much coverage of what's happening in Europe. So interesting for that reason. It's it's not totally dramatic. I mean, there's talk of wipeout in the States that there's not anything apparently so dramatic happening on this side of the Atlantic. But obviously, if you are invested in those junior tranches, then it's, it's a pretty serious issue, potentially. And Andy, was there another topic you, you wanted to discuss as well? There was. I mean, this has more of a sort of general application. So I've gone from sort of, I had one niche option and one much broader option, which was fund finance. And just a few quick points to make about that. So having talked to some fund finance professionals, a few key points they've made to me. Uh, Obviously, at the moment, with the liquidity situation, which Toby referred to, there is a huge demand for liquidity, not just to sort of prop up struggling portfolio companies, though, although that's certainly part of it, but also for the 
potential capital deployment that people can see in, in a revalued environment, essentially. So people are also seeing the opportunity to put money to work at the same time as prop up struggling companies. Also, the issue of NAV-linked covenants in fund finance facilities. So this is where credit lines are available up to the point where the value of the portfolio drops below a certain level, at which point if you have an NAV-linked facility that can restrict, essentially the credit line provider is then allowed to either withhold the entire facility or at least withhold some of it. So there are some discussions going on around that. It doesn't mean to say that the action taken would necessarily be that drastic, but there's certainly conversations taking place around what to do where you have those NAV-linked covenants. And then the final point was just uh, around the attention bandwidth of fund finance providers. Everybody's wanting to talk to them at the moment. As I say, there's a huge demand for liquidity. You know, these, these guys are just being besieged by people wanting to pick up the phone and talk to them. In some cases, the need for liquidity is so urgent. You know, it's a bit like everybody trying to get through to a call centre at the same time. Eventually you give up, right? For some funds, they will just give up and the way that they will achieve liquidity instead of long protracted discussions with fund finance providers is to just go for the the last resort option which is fire sales of weaker assets to free up some liquidity to prop up stronger assets and also as I said earlier to provide maybe some capital for deployment. I'd like to move to the real assets market Evelyn Lee, a news editor at Private Equity Real Estate News. Keen to to hear what's been the biggest stories in your markets over the last two weeks. The biggest story right now in private real estate is uh, something we we covered this week, which is the subject of tenant defaults arising from coronavirus lockdowns. So the last two weeks is the period of time when the first rent payments came due since COVID-19 was declared a, a pandemic by the World Health Organization. So what's happening is many tenants in multiple countries are not paying rent. And that's because commercial tenants are unable to operate their businesses and multifamily tenants have lost their jobs because of the shutdowns. Landlords have had different responses to this. So some have taken a hard stance and threatened legal action, but I think most landlords are trying to work with their tenants. The industry association NAREM came out with the member survey results this week and it showed that two thirds of real estate investment managers have offered rent relief to their tenants. Um, That's typically in the form of a rent holiday for two to three months with the expectation that the lease terms will be extended and the rent abatement will be amortized over a set period of time. The issue with these tenant defaults is that it puts landlords at the risk of becoming delinquent and defaulting themselves as borrowers. So while landlords are talking to their tenants about rent relief, they're also talking to their lenders about mortgage relief so abatements or deferrals in their loan payments. And essentially you're seeing this potential domino effect of defaults. So you're talking about the the force majeure invocation, I suppose, that some of the tenants are evoking with with their landlords. There was an interesting story uh, about Blackstone's experience uh, in the UK. What, What can tell us more about that? So with the time period for the UK, that was March 25th when their second quarter rent payments came due. And so around that time, a week leading up to that date, the tenants at their UK railway arches approached Blackstone and their JV partner, Telereal Trillium, for some rent relief. They offered rent deferrals for three months, but the tenants 
pushed back and said they wanted you know rent holiday for you know for three months. It came out in the FT article on the 25th of March, and then two days later, the JV, which is the Arch Company, came out with an announcement that they were waiving rent for three months. You know, the publicity of that, I think, probably was a big factor. Great. Um, last but not least, Bruno Alves, uh, senior editor at uh, Infrastructure Investor. Lots going on in the infrastructure market. What can you tell us about what's been happening for infrastructure managers and their investors over the last two weeks? I thought today I'd, I'd bring you something a little bit different and, and actually talk about digital infrastructure. And, and that's one of the brighter spots, if we can put it that way, in this current environment. And to give you an idea, when we, you know, when we were interviewing Sam Pollock, who's the head of infrastructure for Brookfield Asset Management about a couple of months ago, we were asking him about how he was investing his last fund, which, you know, was having more digital infrastructure in it than expected. And we were kind of asking him how he thought this relatively nascent asset class would fare in a, a potential downturn. And he kind of got back to us and said, look, I, I just don't see data consumption dropping dramatically in a recession. And you know, little did we know that a few weeks later, we're actually in a scenario where data consumption is actually blowing up exponentially. And it was really about how this would fare, this relatively nascent sector would fare in a recession. And little did we know that actually it, it would just explode. So I thought I'd share what that is doing for the status of digital and, and for the asset managers involved in it. And obviously, there's actually a bit of short-term pressure because, look, we're all Zooming and we're, we're all, you know, streaming stuff on Netflix. And so for the asset managers, there's, you know, questions around making sure that the networks they manage are, are resilient and reliable. And funnily enough, they're, they're actually trying to tinker as little as possible with the networks so that they don't disrupt the traffic and the customer experience. Luckily, supplies of fiber have not you know, been affected. The fiber supply chains have not been affected. And so things are, are holding up okay. But what's also quite interesting is you're kind of having you know, a complete, a sort of reverse pattern of consumption. So beforehand, most of the digital infrastructure development was done in urban centers because that's, you know, we all went to the office and we all used broadband there, et cetera. And now the, the use case, most people are using this at, at home and they're using it during the hours that used to be off peak. So, you know, the off peak hours are kind of the new peak hours. In fact, you, could, you know, you could argue there's, there's peak all the time, but, but there's been this reverse and uh, this reversion. And what that means is also you are now looking at the potential for investment opportunities in these areas, which used to be the network's edge, uh, but now have a kind of high capacity workload uh, put on them. So that's quite interesting because you can already see how some investment opportunities, even kind of short to medium term ones are, are popping up. And then the more longer, medium to longer term opportunities that are actually coming out of this is obviously the fact that everyone is now completely uh, aware that they need to have all their business continuation plans in the cloud stored in safe data centers that can be accessed through resilient and, and high capacity fiber networks. One GP told us that the crises tend to accelerate trends that are already ongoing. And that's, that's kind of the story that we're seeing for digital infrastructure. A lot of this stuff was ongoing and now it's just been massively underlined. So I thought that would be, I wouldn't call it a good news story. That's, that would be the wrong way to describe it. But it's interesting to see how, you know, you have this sector 
that, that all of a sudden has become, again, essential infrastructure uh, pretty much overnight. It, it already was that, but it's, it's completely uh, been thrust into the, the mainstream of investing now. Great. Uh, really interesting to hear. Lastly, some takeaways from the secondaries market. Over the last two weeks, it really seems that not much has changed. Uh, there seems to be a continuing pause on deal activity. Um, one buyer I spoke to this morning described it as a graveyard. I don't believe he was referring to everything having died, but just uh, everything being very, very quiet and said that everyone's waiting for someone to make the first move. Haven't really seen any, any big deals close or launch over the last two weeks based on conversations that we're having with people. Lawyers, buyers, advisors, all sort of sitting on their thumbs. But one interesting niche of the market that seems to be getting a lot of attention is the preferred equity market. This is a strategy that does offer downside protection to the issuers of the security via preferential cash flows. Um, and it can be more agreeable to the party that, that takes on the preferred equity due to lack of covenants, as you would have, for example, in, in a debt instrument. So there are a couple of dedicated preferred equity investors within the secondaries market, but it seems that that uh, traditional secondaries buyers are eyeing the space and looking at, at how they could use their secondaries capital to invest via that way. Um, I wanted to end on a positive note, throwing it back to you, Isabel Markham. We um, at Private Equity International has been looking into some good examples of good things that GPs have been doing over the past two weeks. And I know um, Buyouts has written about that as well. What are some of the examples of good deeds that the private equity firms have done? So I guess most recently we had a story yesterday about senior executives at Partners Group who are foregoing their salaries for the next six months and that is going to be funneled into a fund uh, for portfolio company employees. That makes quite a bold statement to the market so it's going to be really interesting to see if any others follow suit on that. And then across the board we've just had some really interesting and different ways of approaching this. We've had some firms in Europe, TKO Capital and Invest Industrial are two examples who have has gone ahead and made large donations to local hospitals. And then we've had a couple of firms thinking about setting up employee funds. Leonard Green created a $10 million employee assistance fund for portfolio companies that are going to be significantly affected by the virus. We heard about a community set up for the venture capital community to, you know, it's obviously a very difficult time if you're a startup and you're trying to get things off the ground and you're trying to get new capital coming in. So they're building a website um, that's going to host offers and promos and try and drive some traffic to some of those companies that are really trying to build some momentum in the market. So yeah, there are some good news stories out there and it's really great to see that private equity firms are trying to be, as Evelyn was saying, kind of good corporate citizens and good stewards of their portfolio companies. Thanks for tuning in to the latest edition of Spotlight. Just a reminder that you can find all our coronavirus coverage in one place. Just head to the homepage of PEI, Buyouts Insider, Private Debt Investor, Perry News and Infrastructure Investor or any of our other titles. Click on the Quick Search tab and you'll find our coronavirus page there. For Private Equity International, I'm Adam Lay. Thanks for listening.